0: And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? And properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. He does not think the sl- he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say we are unworthy slaves. we have done only that which we ought to have done. Father, we are reminded this morning that. We need faith even in the non-dramatic issues of life, in our daily service, for we are unworthy slaves and objects of wrath by nature, but in your mercy and in your grace through your Son, you've given us a new standing, making us new creatures in Christ. How grateful we are, and as we just sang, we thank you for that, for the cross, and for the Spirit who is our helper who lives in us. Father, we are so thankful for the last week and the missions conference that you gave us. We want to pause and be still and remember your faithfulness. We are so grateful for the many emails that missionaries have sent from around the world, of how encouraged they were and how refreshed they were. And thank you that we were refreshed by their faith as well. We lay before you this project to provide three books of the New Testament in a people that have no such Bible at all. And we pray that you would enable us and those who are involved in the translation process to make this real. Now we come before you, Father, and we thank you that your word is like food. You commanded us like a newborn baby. We are to long for the pure milk of the word so that we can grow. So we thank you for the purity of Holy Scripture, that it is nothing but truth. And we ask that as we open it, you would open our hearts to what is written here. We know this is a challenging book, but you have given it to the church, that all Scripture is profitable, that you use it to equip us for every good work. So I ask that you'd help me to teach this morning with the insight and power of the Spirit, that you'd use the preparation as I've studied and as I've prayed, and that you would bring it home in a way that only the Spirit can. So we'll give you thanks and praise and honor, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation, chapter 12, we have turned a corner and we are in the parenthetical section, or one of the parenthetical sections of the Gospel of John, and it deals with some very important future events. Now, the average person is always interested in the future. If you turn on the television, there's a good chance that you'll hear some expert give his predictions about the future. Some scientist may give his predictions of what he thinks will happen in space or technology, or some pundit about the next election or some diplomat over some issue, say, in the Middle East. And of course, we listen every day to the future, maybe the sharpest of all predictions when we hear the weatherman, though not always that accurate, is it? The future is important, and it's big business. Americans will spend in the billions of dollars next year to learn their future through a palm reader or some internet website where they pay a fee to some new age occult person yet the Bible is clear that only God knows the future, and God records for us the future here in the Revelation. Now, this is a very important chapter. Some consider it the most important chapter in all of the Revelation. I don't know that I can make that judgment, but I can say that if you do not understand Revelation 12, the rest of the book is going to be really fuzzy to you. So we're going to go through it slow. We'll spend at least three weeks here in the 12th chapter. Uh, you can see this morning we're going to focus just on six verses. I've entitled the message, The Woman and the Dragon. The woman, we will see her identity. The dragon, well, it's identified for us specifically as Satan. But I'm going to read the whole chapter so you know where, where we are headed here in the days ahead. Revelation chapter 12, follow along in your Bible. I hope you bring a Bible. You can't mark up an iPad like you need to, at least where you can remember it. Some people don't just punch it in, Revelation 12. and But if uh, some of you, if I said, well, look up the book of Obadiah, unless you had an iPad, you wouldn't know if there is even a book named Obadiah, right? So you need a paper copy of the Bible. It will be very helpful. But believe me, I had the one of the first electronic Bibles ever produced. I was a tester for it at Dallas Seminary back in the 1980s. There's nothing like a paper Bible to help you to learn the Word of God. So bring one if you can, all right? Revelation 12, follow along. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to heaven, or caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found in, for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death, For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. When the dragon saw he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, So that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But The earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Wow, what a chapter. Hmm. A pulpit committee was interviewing a young pastor to see if he might be a good fit for their church. And the head of the public committee asked the young man a question. I know you're new. I know this would be your first church, but do you feel like you know the Bible pretty well? To which the young preacher said, well, yeah, I I do my best to know it. And the head of the public committee said, well, what part of the Bible do you think you know the best? To which the young man said, well, I think I know the New Testament the best. And so they asked him, well, why don't you tell us about the story and give us a critique of the prodigal son? So the young preacher said, I'll be glad to, and he proceeded with these words. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night, and he fell upon stony ground, and thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Solomon and his wife, Gamora, came by and carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of. But as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair in a limb, and he hung there 40 days and 40 nights, after which he became very hungry. And the ravens came and fed him. The next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock, and he caught a ship to Nineveh. And when he got down there, he found Delilah sitting on a wall. He said, throw her down, boys, throw her down, boys. And they said, how many times shall we throw her down till seven times seven, and he said, nay, but 70 times seven. And they threw her down 490 times, and she burst asunder in their midst, and they picked up 12 baskets of the leftovers, and in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Well, the committee chairman interrupted, and he said, fellows, I think we need to call this guy to our church. He really knows his Bible. Now, obviously, this story is fictional, It's as fictional as some of the interpretations are of Revelation chapter 12. Just recently, it made not just national news, but international news that the rapture would take place on April the 23rd. And the text of scripture that they used was Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And they said that the moon is now appearing under the constellation Virgo, the sun clothing her, which must mean the rapture of the church. Well, this is April the 29th, if you didn't notice, and we are still here. And so everything is context. The Bible is often abused and misrepresented because it is taken out of its historical grammatical context. So let me dust off your minds for a moment and set the broad context and then the immediate context. Most of you know, as this slide illustrates, that there are three major divisions to the Revelation. Jesus commands John to write the things which you have seen. That's the past. He has a vision of the glorified Christ and he writes it down in chapter one. Write the things which are. That's the present. That's chapters two and three as he records seven actual churches that are in existence in his day. And then the things that must take place after these things. That's the future. So when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse, it begins with the words, after these things. You can't miss it. And a door is opened in heaven, which we saw was a picture of the rapture of the church. And it was not by accident that there were 24 elders, a representative number in Scripture, these 24 elders represented the body of Christ that had been taken up into heaven. And so the seven churches are never mentioned again, no church is mentioned until Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 at the Second Coming. So we are in the futuristic section of the Revelation. In chapter 4, we see a picture of the Father at the throne. At chapter 5, we see the Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father who's handed a scroll, the title deed, to the earth. And then in chapters 6 through 19, we see how God is going to reclaim the earth for His Son. We've already underscored that these three sets of seven judgments do not happen at the same time, but they happen consecutively. The first are the seal judgments, followed by the trumpet judgments, followed by the bowl judgments. Here's a chart reminding you of the seven sealed scroll. If you remember, the first four seals represented the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We had a sermon on each of these seals. Then the fifth seal represented the martyred saints, those who are one to Christ during the Great Tribulation, but they are beheaded for their faith because they refuse to follow the Antichrist. The sixth seal we saw represented some cosmic changes in the universe. The first time that happens, and will happen several times, during this seven-year period. And then when you come to chapter 7, there's a pause in the action. Now, understand there is no pause in terms of the events taking place. The pause that we see between the uh, 6th and 7th trumpet is simply a pause to help us, I suppose, to catch our breath, but also to help us to see what God is doing as these judgments unfold. And so in the seventh chapter, we studied the 144,000 Jews who are saved from the 12 tribes of Israel who preach the gospel to the whole world. And then the seventh seal is open. Now, we've seen already that the seal judgments can be seen only one at a time. But when the seventh seal is broken, you can see all seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet is contained seven bowls. So there's an order to this madness, and it's not mad at all because God has given this book structure. Six trumpets, a pause of time to help us to see what was going on during these six, I mean, six seals. The seventh seal is open and the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, as this diagram shows, there's once again a pause in the action. And in the 10th through the 14th chapter, God introduces us to seven very important people, seven personages that are playing a leadership role during the time of the tribulation period. Now, when the seventh seal is open, because you can see the seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet, you can see the seven bowls of judgment, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. I mean, it just, I suppose, literally takes their breath away. There's dead silence in heaven. Can you imagine that? Heaven this morning is filled with praise and adoration. But there'll be 30 minutes of silence in heaven because of what God is about to do. So here between the sixth and seventh judgment in the we study those uh those first six trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. So when you come to chapter 10 again he's showing us what is happening. And so in chapter 10 we saw the angel in his little book. In chapter 11, we saw the two witnesses that are used by God. The Bible speaks of the return of Elijah during the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so virtually all are in agreement that one of these two witnesses is Elijah And I think the second is Moses, but I wouldn't fight over it or break fellowship over it. But what's interesting is that in 1115, in the middle of this pause, so that you can see that the action is simultaneous, God says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you think, well, this is the second coming, but it's not. In fact, the bold judgments haven't even happened. And so you do not see while the seventh trumpet is blown and this announcement is made, you do not see the action of the seventh trumpet that contains the seven bowls until you come to chapter 16. Chapter 15 introductory to the 16th chapter, setting us up for the trumpet judgments. So here's a new diagram for you that you've not seen yet the seven bowls of wrath. And again, in the seventh trumpet are seven bowls. And between the sixth and the seventh bowl, just a few verses in in this case, but nonetheless a pause in the action so you can see what God is doing. Now, it's clear as you read these three sets of seven judgments that they intensify with time. For instance, in the fourth seal, we saw one-fourth of the world affected. In the third trumpet, we saw one-third of the world affected. So the intensity in terms of the effect of the judgment is growing and when the bold judgments happen, look out, the sealed judgments encompass both believers and unbelievers. The, the trumpet judgments do the same, but the bold judgments will only affect the ungodly lost people of this world. So to give you the big picture in this next diagram, if you'll bring it up for me, again, the rapture of the church is the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. The Bible has always speaks of the return of Christ for his people as imminent. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled since the church was established on the day of Pentecost for Jesus to come and get you. It could happen this afternoon. And so you have to live with that readiness that it might be 100 years from now or it might be this afternoon. The church has always lived with that perspective. However, the second coming is a very planned, predicted program, and there are many events that must take place. After the rapture, shortly after, there is a peace treaty that is signed by the Antichrist, and you can see this seven-year period is divided into two halves, by Jesus, by the prophet Daniel, by the apostle Paul, and by the apostle John, three and a half years each. Israel's protected in the first half. Israel is persecuted in the second half. And so uh, this is a very important time in human history. And while this passage of Scripture will be so relevant to people who are living during this time, studying the pages of Scripture to see what is going to happen next, all Scripture is given by inspiration. God gave us this set of Scripture called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, because there's application in here for us today. Now, as we step into this pause, this uh, parenthesis of sorts, again, in chapters 12 and 13, there are seven key personages that we are introduced to. And amongst those seven, there's an unholy trinity where Satan mimics the role of God the Father, the Antichrist, mimics the role of God the Son, and the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist, as we will see, mimics the role of God the Holy Spirit. An evil trinity of sorts, but in the end, of course, we will see that God will be victorious through his Son. Now, if you're a new Christian and you don't know it yet, let me inform you, Satan hates you And he wants to destroy you. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to wreck your family. He wants to wreck your testimony. And if you'll allow him, he'll do precisely that. And so there's much we can learn about this evil one, here termed the red dragon. So again, the focus is the woman and the red dragon, and God reveals three truths about this woman in these few short verses of Scripture. First, we want to consider the identity of the woman, the identity of the woman. We're told here in verse 1, a great sign... "...appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars." I need to tell you right off that the identity of the woman has been a source of great debate for centuries, largely by cults, just like the group that we saw in this past week who identified the woman in a false way in the realm of astrology and therefore discerned in their thinking that the, that the rapture was going to happen. It's kind of like the 144,000 that we studied, and we saw some of the wacko interpretations that people have held during the age of the church. Every major historical doctrine has been denied by one woman who claimed to be the woman. Her name is a lady who founded a group called Christian Science that is neither Christian nor scientific. Her name was Mary Baker Eddy. She believed that she was the woman and the child that she gave birth to was the Christian science religion. And of course, she taught central to her teaching that mind could overcome matter, that mind could overcome disease, that if you thought right, you could think your way out of any sickness, even death. Well, she died in 1910. Now her mansion was right across the street from a dormitory that I lived in for two years when I was at Boston College. And I went over there on occasion just to see, you know, who would show up. And sometimes there would be opportunity for me, even as a new Christian, to give some evangelistic witness. Of course, when she died, it was very difficult for her followers to admit. So they put her in a carriage and propped her up and wheeled her up and down Beacon Street there for a few weeks and then her body began to decay and so they decided to bury her and they buried her with one of the earlier telephones in her coffin because they believed that somehow she would come back and she'd be able to radio them I guess. Well clearly she is not the woman. Now our Roman Catholic friends say that Mary the queen of heaven is the woman. But that cannot possibly be true for a number of reasons. Mary is dead. She's in a grave. And we're going to see that the woman that is described in these verses is very active in the future. Mary's been dead for a few thousand years. Now, we have people like Enoch and Elijah that were translated into heaven. But Mary has not been translated, though that is a central doctrine in Roman Catholicism. In November the 1st, 1950, Pope Pius XII said that Mary was ascended into heaven. It's one of the seven feast days. It's a holy day of obligation that as a young child, it was one of the days outside of Sunday I had to attend church to be in good standing with the church. Mary's dead. She her body was not captured up into heaven, no matter what people may say. The woman is not Mary, and we'll see that's an impossible interpretation. But some evangelicals say the woman is the church. Again, the problem with that, when we come to verse 5, we just read it, she gave birth to a son, and so if the woman is the church, that would mean that the church gave birth to Jesus. The truth is, Jesus... Uh, gave birth to the church. But again, what do they do? They make the church existing in the Old Testament. So when you speak to Reformed theologians today, as they like to refer to themselves, whether it's a Francis Schaeffer or John Piper, and, and again, I'm thankful for these men who had the gospel and the good that they did for the faith. But the church did not exist in the Old Testament. It is a unique entity distinct from Israel. Jesus said, I will build my church. You say, well, how can they come up with that? Well, there's a lot of things they use. One thing is language. As you know, uh, in the early church, most Jews did not read the Hebrew scriptures, but they read the Septuagint, the Greek translation. It's translated, uh, it's abbreviated in your Bible, often in the margin, LXX, because it was written supposedly by 70 men in 70 days. That's neither here nor there, but that's what most Jews read. And in the Septuagint, You will see the word for church, ecclesia, and they say, see, the church is there in the Old Testament. The Greek translators of the Old Testament refer to the assembly of people as the church. Well, to be consistent, the word church is also used in the New Testament of a mob of people that want to kill the apostle Paul. It just meant an assembly of people. They may be called out for holiness, as we are, but they also may be called out even for evil. But again, if you want to say that God is done with Israel, that the church is the new Israel, then you have to somewhat allegorize the word of God and come up with a different interpretation. Now, why do we not interpret the scripture that way? because god gave us a method for interpreting you say well how do you know your method is right pastor i'll tell you why because god contained within the scripture how to interpret the scripture so what's interesting is our reformed brothers take a plain historical grammatic interpretation of most of the bible but when they come to the prophetic section Especially those prophecies that deal with the second coming. They're not consistent. They don't do this with the first coming. Is it Bethlehem? Is Bethlehem. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, as the prophet Micah said. But when you come to the second coming, they allegorize the scripture. And they do not interpret it in its plain historical sense. And yet, when you say, for instance, when we're studying the prophet Daniel, in Daniel 9, he was reading the prophet Jeremiah, who is his predecessor. And he's wondering, well, how long are we going to be here in Babylon? So as he pours over the prophet Jeremiah, the 25th chapter, Jeremiah says, 70 years. And Daniel thinks, ah, it's almost up. Daniel literally interpreted that prophecy. When you come into the New Testament and you read the apostles and the Lord Jesus, and you see them interfacing with Old Testament prophecies, how do they interpret them? In their literal, plain, historical, grammatical context. But this idea that the church is the new Israel, this is a history lesson, church history lesson. But look, very often we interpret Scripture through our own rose-colored glasses. And there's a lot we can learn from church history. And I know this is a difficult book. You've wanted me for years to preach it, so I'm preaching it, all right? But understand, Revelation 12 is critical to understanding the rest of the Revelation. Revelation. And it has huge implications in your day-to-day personal life. But there was a fellow, a late church father, as we call him, called Origen, who lived during a time in human history that to preach that Jesus was a king who would have a literal kingdom on the earth would not go over well with a Roman emperor. It could mean your life. So he somewhat allegorized the scripture. There's a fellow who came after him, his name was Augustine of Hippo. Augustine uh, died in the year 430, and he too said that the church was a new Israel. He was a what we call today a staunch Calvinist. Now, obviously, Calvin comes centuries later. He doesn't come until 1509. But still, he's called Augustine the father of predestination. Why? Because of his view of Israel. So when Reformed theologians come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, if God is done with Israel, if there's no future or significance for the Jew... When you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you can't read it in reference to the people of Israel and God's election of them in chapter 10, their rejection of him in chapter 9, their rejection of him in chapter 10, his future restoration of them in chapter 11. You have to read it in a different way. So Calvin came to Romans 9, and he says it's not dealing with God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world, but God choosing you to go to heaven and you go to hell. Sorry, no... Inference implied there, all right? So it creates a dynamic that is unhealthy as you approach the Word of God. Now, let me just say parenthetically, because of this, the way some Christians, and God is their judge, I'm not, the way some Christians viewed Israel was not always in a healthy way. Let me read Augustine. Protestants love to quote Augustine, as do Catholics. They both claim, both groups claim them as their own. Augustine said this of the Jews. He believed that the Jews, he says, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews, with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word. And then he writes in the treatise against the Jews that they, the Jews, must be allowed to survive but never to thrive. So there are proper punishments for their refusal to recognize the truth that the church claims. You go into Yad Vashem. Some of you will be there with me, Lord willing, in about 10 days. And the very first exhibit you see are these words written by Augustine. These hateful, heinous words about the Jewish people. No wonder Jewish people kind of just broad brush us all together. Oh, this is what Christians believe. So here's Augustine. He says, let them live so that they might suffer. And again, his theology is adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. the Roman Catholic Church to this day says, we are the new Israel. We are the people of God. There's no significance for the Jewish people. Well, you got men like Calvin and Luther who grow up in the Catholic Church. They're studying to be priests. One becomes a priest. One is in the process. And they think, look, we're looking at all this corruption with the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops. They can't be the people of God. Only those who've been transformed by a second birth who are born again. And so they redefine the church, but they keep the same doctrine that the church, the body of born again believers, not the institutionalized church, the body of born again believers is the new Israel and God is done with the Jewish people. So here's the words of John Calvin. He said, and I quote, the Jews are a rotten An unbending people whose obstinance deserves they be oppressed without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Oh, that's hurtful. Martin Luther recorded these words in 1563. Listen. When then, what then shall we Christians do with this damned rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses and blasphemies. Let me give you some of my honest advice. First, their synagogues should be set on fire and whatever does not burn up should be covered and spread over with dirt so that no one may be able to see a cinder or a stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity, in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his sons and his Christians. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, For they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a sizable or in a stable like gypsies in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives as they complain incessantly before God with bitter wailing. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry lies cursing in blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death not to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. You ought not, you cannot protect them unless in the eyes of God you want to share in all of their abomination. To sum up, Luther writes, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one, so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. And so Augustine adopted his theology from origin. Catholicism Catholicism adopted their theology from Augustine. And Luther and Calvin from Romanism with a different spin on it. And the problem with all these men is they did not understand the role of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, and the salvation of the world. God made an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. And so when they read, again, Romans 9, it was not in terms of national election because God's done with the Jew. It was in terms of personal election. Look, you give Romans 9, 10, and 11 to any new Christian who has not been yet educated beyond his own intelligence and say, give me in one word what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, and he'll tell you, well, it's obviously about Israel. You have to be educated into their position beyond the simple, plain reading of Scripture. And so in 9, he deals with their past election. In 10, why are they in unbelief? The same reason most Gentiles are in unbelief. Because they don't think they need a Savior. Most Gentiles think they are good enough to get into heaven through their own efforts and their good life. But in chapter 11, he deals with their future restoration. So the chapter opens with these words. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he plainly states in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You think God was surprised by what the Jewish people did in his day? Progenosco, God foreknew this. He knew in advance precisely that though he would come to his own, his own would not receive him. And so one of the great tragedies unfolding in the 21st century, and it is accelerating, is what we call replacement theology. Most of you realize that historically, most evangelicals in America were pro-Israel. They understood that God used the Jewish people to bring the first coming, and he will use them to bring the second coming, and that Israel is God's prophetic yardstick of what he is doing in the world. But that's beginning to change amongst Protestant evangelicals. Look, I believe the only reason God hasn't smushed us as a nation is because beginning with Harry Truman, there were evangelicals who had access into the Oval Office that were exhorting him, pleading with him to protect Israel as a people. Here we are as a nation, 60 million of us are missing, We've taken the technology that we developed as a people, we call it abortion, and we have sold it to nations across the world and 600 million little babies are gone across the planet. As a nation, we through our movies and our music have promoted sensuality and adultery and premarital sex and extramarital sex as normal. Now we are promoting homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle and transgenderism. Well, who are we to judge? Who are we to say what sex you are? That it's not measured between your legs, but between your ears. That's America. I'm telling you, if we oppose Israel, it's over for this nation. Why do you suppose Adolf Hitler had Martin Luther read in the churches in Germany? He did for a reason. Because he wanted the Jewish people, who for the most part were nominal Christians and not born again at this time. He wanted them to oppose the Jewish People And so the seeds are being sown for an anti-Semitism that we're going to study in the revelation that is eventually going to sweep the world where all the nations of the world in this final seven-year segment of history are going to oppose Israel, including the United States. Now look here at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman. This woman is not the church, so the church is represented as a woman. She's represented as the bride of Christ. Just remember, she's the bride of Christ, and clearly in this context, uh, she's not giving birth to Christ. It's just the opposite. Christ gives birth to the church. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke futuristically, I will, I will, I will build my church. If you want to study that, it's one of the sessions in the ecclesiology course in the Institute of Biblical Studies, and I walked through five proofs why the church, why we know it didn't begin when Jesus walked on the earth, but it began literally actually on the day of Pentecost after his ascension. That would be for your future study. And so a great sign appears in heaven, and it is indeed a sign this cannot be The church, it certainly cannot be Mary because we're going to see in a moment that the woman flees into the wilderness. Oh, but if all of Revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, took place before 70 AD, then you could make Mary fit in here and you could wedge her in. But again, do we have freedom to interpret prophecy that way? If I say to you, I'll meet you tonight for dinner at 6 o'clock. Hmm. I wonder what the pastor meant by dinner. I wonder what he meant by six o'clock. You know, no, I meant what I said. I said what I meant. God gave language to communicate. And so, again, God gave us a pattern on how to interpret the scripture. Now, two truths are highlighted about this woman. The first concerns the identity of the woman. The identity of the woman. Let's read the verse and step through it carefully. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, the wonderful thing about interpreting prophecy is that for the most part, it interprets itself. And when there's a figure of speech involved, God alerts us to it. He does, he calls this Woman, a sign, a sign, a Simeon, a mega Simeon, a great sign. Remember, a sign pictures something. Baptism, we just baptized a dear, precious little girl today. She pictured the death, burial, and resurrection by her baptism. So what does this sign picture? Now, remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And while there are 404 verses in the Revelation, 300 of those 404 verses have some allusion to the Old Testament. The challenge is, is it never says, David said, Isaiah said... You just have to read with a certain knowledge of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament, in many ways, is the code to unfolding the revelation. And you may not know a whole lot about the Bible. You say, you know, this sounds somewhat familiar. Maybe this is not Virgo, as these guys said. And what is this referred to? Well, remember in Genesis 37? The biography of joseph that's given in the last quarter of the book of genesis and joseph has a dream of the sun and the moon and the 12 stars and of course the sun represented jacob who's later renamed by god israel and the moon represented rebecca and the 12 stars represented the 12 sons that pictured the 12 tribes of the nation of israel from whom the messiah would come and so the uh, symbolism is unfolded for us in the Bible itself. And it's not surprising that God would describe these uh, 12 tribes that represent Israel as a woman because throughout the Old Testament, God pictures Israel as his bride as he does the church today. Right out in the margin next to verse 1, Isaiah 54, 5 and 6. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 54, 5 and 6. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth for the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected says your God. So it's not by accident that God uses the imagery here of the sun, moon and stars because the Bible says the heavens are declaring the glory of God and in the Old Testament in passages like Genesis 15 Abraham's descendants are compared to the stars in the sky in Israel as a nation becomes a picture of God's glory and honor. So the identity of the woman is no mystery. And again, we'll see in just a moment, it is impossible to take it any other way because of the verses that follow beyond the identity. Let's think for just a moment about the destiny of the woman, the destiny of the woman. We read now in verse two. And she was with child, and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, again, this takes us back to Genesis 3. The very first prophecy in all of the Bible of a Savior is found in Genesis 3. I preached a sermon one time at Christmas. I called it the first Christmas sermon in the Bible. It's found in Genesis 3.15. The Proto-Evangelion, we call it in Latin the first gospel where God in that passage speaks about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Now, most of the time when we think of a woman, we don't think of a seed because the woman doesn't have seed, the man does but because God is going to bring about a supernatural birth, He is going to allow conception to take place in some dear Jewish woman's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jewish women for centuries have recognized that some dear Jewish girl would give birth to the Messiah, and it's the earnest desire of every pious Jewish woman, even to this day, who do not know Jesus yet as Lord. And the Old Testament, both the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah use the uh, imagery of Israel being in labor. And when you come to Romans chapter 9, God describes the Jews with these words. Listen, Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Paul is telling us that Israel is going to give us the Messiah, that he is going to come from the flesh and blood of a people called the Jews. So if you hate the Jews... You hate Jesus because Jesus is a Jew. And so in the fullness of time, Messiah steps into the world through this God ordained, God protected, God called, God blessed people through whom the Lord Jesus comes. And this is why we're warned in Genesis chapter 12. And I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Then you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. You know, I was in a foreign country. I heard a pastor make a joke about a Jew. I said, I don't know how you can make that joke, my friend. God says, I'll bless those who bless the Jews. I'll curse those. Don't make a joke about the Jewish people. I don't find that funny. Every Christian is blessed because of Israel. We have a Bible that is a Jewish book written by all Jewish people who gave us a Jewish Messiah and you should love and bless Israel because God does. And our Jewish people need to know that the greatest friends they have on earth are evangelical born-again believers. As Hanok Taylor reminded us, did he not, those who came to the luncheon? He was just thankful. He was thankful that we have evangelicals who stand behind Israel But as we were just speaking recently, it's changing. And it's changing very, very fast. So the first truth concerns the identity of the woman. The second truth that he gives concerns the animosity towards the woman, the animosity towards the woman. And so this animosity, this hatred, this disdain, as we're going to see, is driven by Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air who's working in the hearts of disobedient people. And he gives us two realities about Satan. First, he gives us a description of the dragon. A description of the dragon here in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now we're instructed about another sign. Again, a sign is symbolic of something. Something that appeared in the heavens. Look, I forget, you know, you, you you hear about this stuff that you read in these comic strips about the devil, this guy in a little red suit, and he's got a pitchfork and a forked tail. That's pure fiction. That comes nowhere from the Word of God. He is using here a picture of a red dragon to help us to understand a very important spiritual reality. And the sign that John uses is not to help us to know what Satan looks like. But what he acts like. He wants you to see by using this description of a great red dragon to know what he acts like. Now, who is this dragon? Well, it's no mystery. You can fast forward in your mind to verse nine. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world. Fourteen times in the revelation, Satan is called the dragon. And it's a beautiful word description that God would give us as a sign because of the heinous terror and bloodshed that dragons would bring. And by the way, don't tell your children that dragons are mythological creatures because they are not. There were literally dragons one time upon the earth. And one of the best presentations you will ever see documenting the historicity of this animal that is now extinct is at the Creation Museum. Now, he's called the red dragon, and we've already seen the word peros in chapter 6 of the rider on the red horse who's granted to take peace away from the earth. And Satan is a great red dragon because he's the author of bloodshed. Jesus said of him, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. Jesus also said of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. And so the color red is a beautiful symbol. He is a, this is a great sign. Why? Because great, Satan is a great person in the realm of evil, of course. Now, originally, he was called Lucifer. Now, some of our English Bibles, instead of translating the word, interpret the meaning of the name Lucifer, which means the son of the morning, but you're in the same place. You call him the son of the morning or you call him Lucifer, it doesn't matter to me. But let me just say this, most people when they think Lucifer, they think of, ooh, that's evil. But actually Lucifer was his good name that was before he fell that was his holy name before he ever rebelled against God and became the dragon became Satan of old and behold it says here in verse 3 reading a little further and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems Now the seven heads. The ten horns, the seven diadems are going to be explained in great depth in Revelation 13 and 17. And we've already seen, we've experienced it a few times. John will just drop a little preview and then he'll explain it later. He's dropping a preview here, but in chapters 13 and 17 of the Revelation, he is going to unfold it for us. And he will interpret this for us. You might want to write over the word seven heads, 17, colon 9, for Revelation 17, 9. Because there we learn that the seven heads represent seven mountains. And then over ten horns, write 17, 12, 17, 12. Because there we're told that ten horns represent ten kings. Now, horns in the Bible, if you're with us in our study of Daniel, and there is reason to this madness, why do we study a Daniel before Revelation? Because Daniel, in many ways, unlocks a lot of the symbolism in the Revelation. Some of you are new to the church, and you told me that you're studying the book of Daniel, and what a huge help it is to you right now as you study the Revelation, and it will be. And some of us need to go back maybe and review it. But if you remember, horns in the Bible are, a symbol of power and heads are a symbol of wisdom. And it's magnified by the adjective seven heads because seven is the number of completion or perfection as it's used in scripture. And so the devil has seven heads because he's full of wisdom. Remember what Ezekiel said, thus says the Lord God, you have the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, again, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we're going to study these 10 kings later that are going to come together as a confederation of nations, and amongst them will come an 11th nation from which the Antichrist will come. But let me just say for now, the common fallacy that the devil is ugly and stupid could be is so far from the truth you can't even believe it. When he was created, he was one of the most beautiful creatures God ever made. And he is by no means a dummy. God gifted and blessed him full of wisdom. And of course, now he is using his intellect for evil. He's not some ugly creature. He's one of the most beautiful creatures God ever made. And he's not stupid. He is smart. He's clever and wise in the realm of evil. Now, we've just cracked the door on what John says. A great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his head were seven diadems. And as we'll see, as John will do over and over again, he'll come back and he'll detail it for us. So hold on to your pew belt and we'll come to it later, all right? Now, beyond the description of the dragon, let's think for a moment about the destruction of the dragon, the destruction of the dragon. Now, while Satan wars with Israel... By sneak preview, with greater details to follow, we're going to learn that ultimately his war is with the Lord Jesus. Look, if you will, now at verse 4. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, we saw it was Israel, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, again, Lucifer was once a beautiful angel, but one day he decided he was too wise and wanted to exalt himself above the stars and be like God himself. You can read of that in Isaiah 14, and 14 times 2 is 28. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that's how I remembered it anyway. Um, but we've seen already in the Revelation that the word stars is sometimes used of literal stars that you look up in the heavens at night and see, but also in the Old and in the New Testament, stars can also be used metaphorically of angelic beings. And we will study next time in the Revelation the career of Satan. So you come back for that. It's very important. But John reveals for us the number of angels that rebelled with Satan. We don't learn that in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament revelation. That a third of the stars, a third of the angels fell with Satan. Now, we know the ultimate end of all of these fallen angels. It will be the lake of fire. Satan's not in hell. People say, well, the devil's in hell and he's after you. Satan's never been to hell. He's not there. He will be someday. He's coming, but he's not there yet. In either case, just think for just a moment. In, in Revelation 9, we saw the release of 200 million demons. Just for the sake of argument, and that's not all of them by any stretch. That's just one category of demons, 200 million that are released. Let's say there's 200, 300 million demons. That means God created approximately a billion angels to start with. Is it any wonder when Elisha is there with his servant, you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 6, and he's afraid there's a lot of them and there's a few of us, and he prays, open his eyes, Lord, that he might see who's really on our side. And the heavens are filled with the chariots of fire with the angels of God defending them. But notice here the graphic picture of Satan's hatred here in verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. Now, Of course, the woman pictures Israel, and through Israel, the child, the Messiah of the world, comes. But when the Messiah comes to the earth... The devil is just waiting to devour this little baby. Now, when did the conflict begin? Well, Moses tells us in Genesis 3.15. And all the way through the Old Testament, you see this war of Satan against the Jewish people. Why? Because God reveals the Messiah of the world is going to come through Israel. Remember Pharaoh? He thought, I'll get rid of these Jewish boys. We'll have every little boy slaughtered and killed. And so what does God call Pharaoh in the book of Ezekiel? A dragon. Why? Because he's one of Satan's servants behind much anti-Semitism. Very often it's the devil himself. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar. He hated the Jewish people. What does God call King Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah? A dragon. He was a murderer from the beginning. Remember at one point in Israel's history, Messiah is going to come from Israel. He's going to come from a certain tribe in Israel, the tribe of Judah. And so there's a legitimate flow of kings as to who can sit on the throne. And so Satan tries to destroy every possible Jewish male who could take the throne, but he misses one. And one dear woman hides her in the temple. Joe asked for some six years. And so when Jesus Christ is born, who's against him? King Herod. Now there are seven Herods in the Bible. Don't confuse them. Most of us at least know Herod the Great, right? He's the one that you deal with primarily at the birth of Christ. And Herod Antipas, he's the one that Jesus stands before. But Herod the Great realized through the religious leaders of Israel, where's Messiah going to be born? Bethlehem of Judea. So the wise men come. It probably takes them approximately six months to come from the east. And just to make sure he doesn't lose a single candidate, he has every boy two years and under slaughtered. Because he wants to guarantee that the Messiah will be exterminated. And all the way through human history, not only do you have the drama of the Christmas story, but you have Hitler and one leader after another trying to exterminate the Jewish people because he hates the Jewish people. But we're going to see when we come to verse 12 in a few weeks, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Satan has always had a deep hatred for the Jews. Look, there's no other people in the face of the earth who have been hated like the Jewish people. None in all of recorded history. Why do you suppose that? Well, look, he can't harm the Lord Jesus. We'll see in a moment why. But he can harm Israel, and he can harm those who give allegiance to Israel. Let's move to the next point. We'll run out of time otherwise. Beyond the animosity towards the woman, uh, let's consider finally the prospect for the woman, the prospect for the woman. In verses 5 and 6, he tells us about the prospect or the future of this woman called Israel. And he underscores two realities. First, the woman is given the victorious Messiah. She's not given a loser. She's given the victorious Messiah. We read now in verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. the child was caught up to God into his throne. So she gave birth, and that refers to Israel, because as you study the Old Testament, the whole nation is involved in the bringing of the Messiah, though Mary obviously alone delivers him. And they gave birth to a male child that, as we'll see, can only refer to the Lord Jesus. Now, it's kind of interesting because he takes this male child from his cradle to the crown. He's caught up into heaven, which is where he is today, at the right hand of the Father. And he doesn't deal with any of the intervening details. He doesn't deal with his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And in all of those things, of course, Satan and all of his attacks against Jesus was totally defeated. But he wants the readers, especially in this future day, but for us as well, to know that we are on the winning side, that we have a victorious, sovereign Lord who is ruling and reigning, and he is coming again to rule the nations with a rod of iron. A male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God into his throne Satan failed to destroy Jesus at his birth. He's failed to destroy him during his life when he brought him out there to that corner of the temple and tried to get him to bow down and worship him. And he failed. He thought he was victorious in the death, but Jesus made spectacle of over him and all the demonic realm, the Bible says, through the blood of his cross. And now he's ascended into heaven and he can't touch Jesus. But he can touch the Jews, those whom Jesus loves, now, some people have asked me before, not too often, but a few times, why didn't Jesus just stay on earth? Why did he ascend into heaven after the resurrection? Why didn't he just stay here? Well, there's several reasons. It's a sermon in itself. But remember, God made some promises to Israel. And because he came to his own, and his own received him not, that for the most part they were in unbelief. Messiah could not yet rule and reign upon the earth, and there are many other reasons for the ascension. The ascension is prophesied in the Old Testament. God said it would happen. It's prophesied in Psalm 66. And the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 66 in reference to the ascension in Ephesians 4. Therefore, it says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. One function of the ascension is it emptied out Sheol. If you lived on the other side of the cross, when you died, you went to righteous Sheol or unrighteous Sheol. Unrighteous Sheol is also called hell. It's a place of torment. Righteous Sheol is also called Abraham's bosom. But it was not absent from the body present with the Lord. Why? Because Messiah had not yet died in time and space and made a provision for your sin to be wiped away and for you to be credited with holiness. So the ascension, God takes out the spirits of all those dead Old Testament saints. They await the resurrection of their body as we do today for our loved ones. Today, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But Jesus is ascended in heaven and other reasons for the ascension. What is he doing there this morning? He's praying for you. You ever think about that? It's sobering to me sometimes. Jesus is praying for me and for you. Does that motivate you to failure or to be an answer to his prayer? I hope the latter. He is preparing a place for you. It's got to be nice. He's had 2,000 years. He cleansed the temple in heaven. He said, it's to your benefit. I tell you the truth. It's to your benefit that I go away. And he sent the Spirit, just as he said. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to heaven and to his throne. Where does that come from? Psalm 2, Psalm 2, verse 9. In fact, in the book of Acts, in the early chapters, they quote this very Psalm. Psalm 2 is being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and so Satan may think he's on the winning team, but he's not, and it's going to be revealed to him, and we'll study it next week. He's only got a short time left. Look at verse 13. I'll give you a sneak preview. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Satan couldn't kill the Jewish Messiah, so what does he do? He vents his hatred on the people who gave the world, the Messiah, and that's been his pattern all the way through human history, but it's going to intensify at the end of time. You talk about persecution on the Jews. They haven't seen anything yet. Finally, not only does Israel give us a victorious Messiah who will reign the world, the woman is given protection from God. There's a protection that some of the Jews will know. We'll study it. Look at verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now look at this slide for a moment. Again, we are reminded that in the first half of the tribulation period, Israel is protected. The Antichrist then goes into the temple, a rebuilt temple. He makes himself out to be God. There's an act of idolatry that takes place that will show the Jews that he can't possibly be the Messiah. And then he will persecute Israel. And so in the prophet Daniel, in the words of Jesus, in the words of Paul, and in the words of John, this seven-year period is divided into three and a half years, called a time, times, and half a times, 1,260 days or 42 months not by accident. And so God is going to protect some of Israel, and they're going to go to a place in the wilderness. Some think it's Petra. Some of you have been there with me. We'll talk about that, so I'll just say that. You say, what does this have all to do with me, Pastor? All Scripture is given by inspiration, and it's profitable. You say, I'm not sure how this applies to me. Let me give you three applications, okay, and we'll close. Number one, I learned from this section of Scripture, just these few verses, that Satan hates Jesus and he hates the Jews. And by application and extension, he hates you. We have been reminded just briefly this morning, but it's going to be expanded as we work through this book, that there is a deep-rooted hatred today for the Jewish people and if you've been a Christian for very long, then you know that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He hates you. Someone asked me, they have asked that a few times, actually. It's a good question. It's a fair question, and I love, I, I just, I wish I could still teach the discovery class because I love the questions and the honesty that comes out of that classroom. They said, Jesus said, love your enemies. Should we love the devil? He said, no. You should hate him. He is confirmed in his fallen state. Angels cannot be redeemed. People can be. There's a reason for that. You should hate him with all your might because he hates you. And he is the one who is working through the anti-Semitism of Hitler or Stalin. And what's happening today in Western Europe, what's happening in the Muslim world, Iran, wants to exterminate the Jewish people repeatedly. They will have their rallies on Friday. And if you read the transcripts, which I do from time to time, they want to literally drive the Jewish people into the sea. They've not changed their tune one bit. They are willing to sacrifice their own sons and daughters in some occasions. Recently in one nationally published magazine, one Muslim mother said this of her son who strapped a vest to himself and took out 10 Jewish men. She said, because I love my son, I encouraged him to die a martyr's death for the sake of Allah. Jihad is a religious obligation encumbered upon us and we must carry it out. I sacrificed my son as a part of my obligation. I asked Allah to give me 10 Israelis for my son and Allah granted my request. My son made his dream come true, killing 10 Israeli settlers and soldiers. Our God honored him even with more than that, and that many Israelis were wounded. Now, if that's not from the pit of hell, I don't know what is. Muslim extremists have a so-called faith where they are called to die for God, where Christianity is centered in God coming to die for us. It is so different from what they teach. Muslim extremists die so that others can die. Our Savior comes and dies so that others can live. Satan is anti-Christ, anti-Jew, anti-born-again Christian, anti-Israel. He hates Israel, he hates Jesus, and he hates you. Secondly, I'm reminded that just as God loves Israel with an everlasting love, so He loves us. Just as God loves Israel with an everlasting love, so He loves us. Let me read to you from the prophet Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And then he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness." You say, well, again, Pastor, I'm not sure how this relates to me. Well, listen, any thoughtful, especially Jewish born-again believer, you don't give up your Jewishness when you believe in Yeshua anymore than I gave up my Italian and Irish blood that flows through my veins. You're still a Jew, but a completed Jew. And again, the early church was asking, and naturally so, if God really loved our nation with an everlasting love, it appears that he has forsaken our nation. And of course, Paul goes through in Romans 8, can anything separate us from the love of God? And he goes through every conceivable category, but then the person would say, well, wait a minute. You've said this before, that God loved us with an everlasting love. What about his people Israel? So 9, 10, and 11, it's not some parenthesis in the book. It's an extension of his argument. In 9, he chose them. In 10, they rejected him. But in 11, he will restore them as a people. Listen, you can bank on it. That as God loves Israel with an eternal love, he loves you. Third and finally, God will keep every promise to Israel. And if he will do that, he will keep every promise he made to you and to me. Now remember, God made an unconditional covenant with Israel. And if you don't know what that is, go back and listen to the message on Revelation 7. It's really important understanding the future of Israel. It has nothing to do with their obedience. It has everything to do with God. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses writes, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, God made some promises to Israel that he is going to keep because, again, they are unconditional in nature and it has nothing to do with the obedience of Israel. He will never, ever abandon the Jew as some of our dear Reformed brothers are teaching. Listen to these words and listen carefully. Thus says the Lord who gives the Son For light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars, for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If, listen to these if-then statements, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. Then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the nations above, excuse me, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. As far as I know, the fixed order of the sun, moon, and stars are still there. The universe hasn't disappeared. We find out every year it's a little bigger than we thought the year before. God hasn't abandoned Israel. It's the only country in the history of the world that has the same piece of property, that speak the same language, that have the same faith, that have the same name in 4,000 years of history. There's no other nation like that in the history of humanity. Now, you may come from a persecuted people, but no one has ever been persecuted like the Jews. And there are about 7 million Jews surrounded by some 200 million Muslims who hate them. And by the way, the Muslims are not our enemy. We should try to win them to Jesus just like we should win nominal Jews and nominal Christians as well. We all need a Savior, and his name is Yeshua. Nicodemus came to Jesus one night, and he thought, because he was a teacher of Israel, a child of Abraham, that he was okay. And Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And he said, well, how can a man be born when he's old? And the answer very simply is, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, I went over it quickly, but I don't know if you noticed it. In verse 6, God said he had for the people of Israel a place prepared. That phraseology is used only one other time in all the Bible. And God has a place prepared, literally that's the order of the words, for you in heaven if you're one of his. Are you part of his kingdom? You can be, God wants you to be. And wisdom would dictate that you would call upon him today. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. You've given it to us for our edification. Thank you that you are a consistent God, that you never change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That every promise you have made, you will keep. Thank you that we can take that to the bank Help us to plead your promises, to learn your word, to mesh our lives in it. In this day of soiled preaching, of compromise, where your character is denied concerning your promises to Israel. Unfortunately, Father, by some of well-meaning believers. Help us to study and show ourselves approved as workmen who are not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Give us a heart in this day of 15-minute sermons to pursue the Word of God, to find out what is really going on in the world, that we might live not for the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Father, I pray today for someone listening within the sound of my voice. They're not really sure that they are a member of the kingdom of God, that heaven is their home. Help them to see by your spirit that Jesus died for all of their sin, not some of it or most of it, but all of it, bore it in his own body on the cross once for all time, and you raised him from the dead announcing that he is Lord. Thank you that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help someone today, Father, in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. I ask it, Father, in the mighty and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.